1: Tonight we're coming to the end of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be coming to the end of our author's look at Jesus and his connection to Melchizedek. And he's finishing up presenting us with many proofs that the priesthood of Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. From the Jewish perspective, and I've mentioned this before, the Jewish perspective of the priesthood was that it its order and its rituals were all given to establish their relationship with God. They were given by God to establish that relationship with God. It was their only way of avoiding God's wrath or gaining God's favor. It was hard to believe that God would change this because it had been brought to them through Moses with such a demonstration of God's power and his salvation from their enemies. You must keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is communicating to Hebrew believers, and these Hebrews were still living in a time when the temple was still in place. The Levitical priesthood was still in operation, calling the people to participate in sacrifices, rituals, and festivals of their faith. And it's interesting to note this because you will remember that at the death of Jesus, the veil had been torn in two. The Holy of Holies had been left open and exposed. And that means that the priest had to erect their own veil of separation. They had to be the obstacle to man's atonement rather than the facilitators of that atonement. Now that is the part of Hebrews that has relevance to us. It illustrates that we have at times erected obstacles to living in the truth. As these priests were, did, and have continued to perpetrate their perception of separation to the people, we see ourselves as Christians continually feeding the old appetites of the flesh and withholding our devotion to the things of God, creating for our own self the perception of separation. We'll celebrate the things of this world and join them in their distractions, reinforcing the lie of separation while neglecting faith and discipline of living in truth. If we develop a greater affinity for living in the world than living in the constant pursuit of intimacy with him, in the context of his presence and his life. And within our soul, we have erected a veil of separation between the mind, will, and emotion and the holy presence of our union life with God, the Spirit of God, a veil that God would tear in two we tend to stitch it back together by moving ourselves away and you know even the concept of of repentance indicates that we have hidden from ourselves the truth because repentance means to turn away from to turn back from looking away from god to looking to god the this is what the hebrew christians had done they were divided between their christianity and their more familiar ritualistic living in judaism And you know, that's something we've talked about a lot. Because you can make a habit, a life of living to the flesh, of living to the world. To where the things of this world seem more inviting to you than the things of God. Where faith becomes a rigorous exercise for you and almost seems fruitless. And when you do that, you cease to grow and mature in truth. Because you're looking away. Because you've erected a veil. Because you're living in the deception of separation. With this in mind, we're going to look at our text today, which is Hebrews 7. And I'm going to start with verse 19, though I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that because we covered it last week. Verse 19 through 28. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 19. For the law never made anything perfect, while on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we now continually draw near to God. And indeed, it was not without the taking of an oath that Christ was made priest. For those Levites who formerly became priests received their office without its being confirmed by the taking of an oath. But this one was designated with an oath through the one, capital, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind or regret it. You, Christ, are a priest forever. And so, because of the oath's greater strength and force, Jesus has become the certain guarantee of a better covenant, a more excellent and a more advantageous agreement, one that will never be replaced or annulled. The former successive line of priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing perpetually in office. But, on the other hand, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and without change because he lives on forever. Therefore, He is able to save forever, completely, perfectly for eternity, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede and intervene on their behalf with God. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, perfectly adapted to our needs, holy and blameless, unstained by sin, separated from sinners, and exalted higher than the heavens who has no day-by-day need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices, first of all for his own personal sin, and then for those of the people, because he met all the requirements and did this once for all when he offered himself as a living sacrifice. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, frail, sinful, dying men. But the word of the oath of God, which came after the institution of the law, permanently appoints as priest a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. As I said, we looked at uh, verse 19 last week concerning our drawing near to God. And we recognized that this is our created purpose as a new creation. We made the point that the new creation is created out of our union with our new spirit and God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17 To live in continuous interaction with God's spirit. And this... Continuous interaction between God and the spiritual man was God's design, and it was necessary to create a spiritual man with a spiritual high priest to facilitate a perfect spiritual relationship between God and man. Now, this was the chief assertion of Paul in his letters to bring the child of God into maturity. Maturity is demonstrated in the constant interaction of a man's soul by faith, by his own determination, by his will, choosing to interact with the Spirit of God. It is illustrated in a dependent relationship of a believer whose ultimate aim is to know his God. The Gospel of John gave us a picture of a dependent relationship between Jesus and his Heavenly Father. The Spirit of God, through the author, is wanting us to know how our great high priest lives to make intercession for us. And how to live in the light of his priesthood. Now, I spoke to this and... This is so important that we understand that maturity is not in what you know between the ears, but the experiential living in truth that happens in the soul. Because we all know people who know a great deal of the Bible, who have copious notes of spiritual people speaking, but still live as though they have no God. That is carnality, not maturity. Maturity does not do away with failure in your life, but it lessens it. It makes it less attractive. It causes you to choose to walk in truth, rather than to allow yourself to be deceived by the attractions of the world and the appetites of the flesh. Let's look at verses 20 through 22. And indeed it was not without the taking of an oath that Christ was made, Priest, For these Levites, who formerly became priests, received their office without its being confirmed by the taking of an oath. But this one, speaking of Christ, was designated with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind or regret it, you, Christ, are priest forever. And so, because of the oath's greater strength and force, Jesus became the guarantee of a better covenant, a more excellent, a more advantageous agreement, one that will never be replaced or annulled. Now, it's important to recognize that what he is quoting is an Old Testament passage. God said to Christ, You are my high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't say that after Christ died. He didn't say that after Christ had lived 33 years on the earth. When did he declare him a high priest? He declared him a high priest in the beginning. He reveals it to David. It's in the Psalms. So here's what we got a picture in our minds because time is so relevant to us in our thinking. That the whole time Jesus walked the earth, he was our high priest. Okay? That's very important for us to know. In verse 20, the author is drawing a conclusion from the oath made by God. That Christ has taken upon himself the office of our spiritual high priest. And has completely fulfilled its duties concerning us. God himself has declared it as an oath. That means His will will not change concerning this. Not that it does. Okay? God has declared it as an oath. It will not change. The high priesthood is unchangeable. It can never be altered because it is essentially connected with the nature, the purposes, and the will of God. And so is your relationship because your relationship is tied to this priest. It is unchangeable. It is inalterable. It is eternal. Now, you will notice that verse 21 is largely in parentheses in your Bible, probably. And that's because it points to the quote of Psalm 110, verse 4. God's word is bound by an oath. And when God makes an oath, it is eternal, forever existent. Not just for a time or a season, right? Right? The Old Covenant was temporary. The Old Testament priests were temporary. But the priest of Christ was, by God's oath, eternal. Also, when you read of God taking an oath, it's in relationship to Christ. It will be related to Christ and the fulfillment of his promises through Christ. So, God takes an oath to affirm the eternal promise presence of truth what he is going to do throughout eternity what is going to be unchanging there are things that god wills that happen in the fullness of time and god will say you will be king to a man and that's god's word and it will be fulfilled it's not god's oath because god's oaths are connected to eternity God's oath, even to Abraham, was connected to Christ unto eternity. Now, in verse 22, we see the results of that oath. Christ is our guarantee. Your Bible may say surety, okay? Same thing. He is our guarantee. Your translation could say surety. That's the Greek word, inguas. And the Greek word for surety means "bondsman," one who pledges his name, property or influence that a certain thing will be done or completed. The surety or guaranteed is, is our guarantee or, or guarantor, is the sponsor for another, acting on behalf of someone who cannot perform for themselves. They represent the other, the pledge to make good on the other's debts. That's how Christ represented us, and still represents us. Christ is our surety. Now, there are several illustrations in the Old Testament. One, there's one in the Old Testament, Genesis 43. You recall the story where Judah tells his father to send Benjamin because of this ruler in Egypt that he doesn't know is his brother, and he says, "Send Benjamin." Let me take Benjamin into Egypt. And Judah pledges surety for the younger brother to Israel, his father. And then in the New Testament, the illustration we studied not too long ago in Philemon. And that is where Paul, in effect, swears surety for the runaway slave Onesimus as he returns to his former master. Now you see in this, Jesus identifies with his own. They are mine. I will guarantee their redemption. That's what he's saying to the Father. Jesus fully satisfied the debt, the introduction of a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant a better high priest than the Levitical high priest could produce, moving from the temporary to the eternal. We received it all through the new birth. We were created to live out the obedience of faith. Jesus guaranteed the new birth. He guaranteed the new birth for you, a new life. He guaranteed that we would be the children of obedience. He guaranteed that we would be God's spiritual offspring. It's so much more than Jesus saying, oh, I'll die on the cross, which is the way you hear it. Jesus said, oh, oh, I'll die on the cross for them. But it means so much more than that. I will become a life for them. I will be the vine. They will be the branches. It will be a holy life consecrated unto you, and they will live for you for eternity. They shall be your children. Now, that's a whole lot more than, yeah, I'll cover the sin. (laughs) Isn't it? God first entered into the covenant with Adam, and man demonstrated through Adam the weakness of flesh. Born in weakness to die the same way. That's true of your flesh even now. Yet through Christ we may know an eternal strength and an unchangeable righteousness. The immeasurable gap between who we were as sons of Adam to who we are as children of God should measure our need to live to truth. Luke twelve forty eight. The man who's been given much. You read it. We are to live a more complete submission, a deeper devotion, a fuller obedience. What is due from the tree that he blessed but an absolute faith to bear the fruit of our union with his spirit? Verses 23 and 24. The former successive lines of priests on the one hand Existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing perpetually in office. But on the other hand, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and without change because he lives on forever. His priesthood did not end at age 50 as did the Levitical priesthood. There were some 83 priests from Aaron to Phinehas, whose life actually was taken at the destruction of the temple. To demonstrate the temporary nature of the priesthood, when Aaron's days of life were coming to an end, God commanded Aaron to accept death in the presence of the people. He had him go up and look and be in the presence of the congregation when his life actually passed from his body. That's in Numbers 20. God made sure that the peoples understood that this is a temporary office for Aaron's line. Verse 24 speaks of an unchanging priesthood that continues uninterrupted. When Jesus revealed that he would die, his death was the chief duty of his priesthood. He was offering his sacrifice for our sake. So you see, it was very important that God would swear the oath before his death. So that when he came to earth, he was actually fulfilling his role as a high priest. He offered the sacrifice of his life for us. His priesthood lives on forever. It secures and matures the elect of God. What do you think the priesthood is going to do when you pass from this life to the next There will be an ongoing work of maturity. Most of us who have children understand that children are normally born with legs. We don't cause them to grow by telling the child to walk. But in fact, we encourage them to use their legs because they have legs. And we know the purpose of those legs. And we put them in circumstances and situations so that they begin to exercise those legs and learn to walk as they were intended. Isn't that correct? Do you think coming into eternity, hitting heaven's gates, that we're going to be completely mature? Or do you think perhaps we'll be learning to walk again? The priesthood goes on because priesthood is synonymous with parenting. It is a sacrificial, intercessional work. Verse 24 speaks of a priesthood that would not change. Speaks of a priesthood that would go on forever. And then we move to verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever, completely, perfectly, for eternity. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede and intervene on their behalf with God. Now, your reference may say, to the uttermost. He was able to save to the uttermost. And that's a good phrase as well. And what does it mean that Christ was able to save to the uttermost? And what does it mean? To save. Well, understand, to save means to deliver. That's what it means. To deliver. And to the uttermost means completely or perfectly. And Christ did not save us and then leave us to work out the rest of our eternal lives for ourselves. No, he saves us to the uttermost, which has to do with eternity and saves completely. Okay? So whatever obstacles, hindrances, or difficulties that seem to prevent you from living in the fullness and abundance of the life that he gave you, he has provided salvation for, deliverance from, and victory over. You are saved to the uttermost. Now, he always lives to intercede. Now, most people get a picture that God is interceding on behalf of us to God the Father, who's somewhat perturbed by these rebellious people that he calls his children. And God says, now, don't worry, Lord. You remember, I died for them, and they're going to be much better here when they die. You won't have to put up with any more of their rebellion or their bad behavior. You remember that, Lord, right? Right? And that's really how it's reflected to us. And I don't like that because, number one, it's not. It's heretical. It's not in here. And number two, I believe that when we talk about intercession being God intervening, Christ praying for God to intervene on our behalf, we're taking away from the sovereignty of God's work. We're throwing him back into the time where he's having to come into our world, into our circumstances. We're experiencing those things and be our Savior, arrive in time, right? And over time, you've heard this verse used that God is interceding for us. Remember, folks, God is interceding, Christ is interceding for us. In other words, if Christ wasn't interceding in this particular circumstance, God wouldn't help you. Is that a true picture? But that's the emotional concept people take away. Well, he lives to intercede. The word intercede in the Greek is entunkano, And it means to go or to meet a person, especially for the purpose of conversation or consultation or supplication or prayer. And it is Christ communicating to us the heart of the Father for us, while communicating to the Father our hearts to him, because that's his role. Not because God needs that, but because that's his role in his position as high priest.
0: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger, this program, is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.